Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill. I write about filmmaking craft for IndieWire. My guest today is Francis Lawrence, who directed the last three movies in the Hunger Games series and now returns to the franchise for the prequel, The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Set several decades before the original Hunger Games, Songbirds and Snakes is Lawrence's most epic treatment of author Suzanne Collins' dystopian world yet, and he and I sat down for a wide-ranging conversation about how each stage of the filmmaking process was affected by his desire to take the franchise in new directions. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Well, I guess to start with, I'm curious, you know, now that you've you've directed three Hunger Games movies before this, so at what point in the process... Do you start having conversations with the producers and the author? I mean, is it when the book is published? How, I guess, I guess basically, what were the origins of this movie? Uh, this one was actually so early. I mean, all the books were out already by the time I got involved in the last um, series. This one, um, you know, we were sort of caught off guard because there were no plans in 2015 for another book. And then in 2019, Suzanne called Nina and I and said, hey, listen, surprise, I'm almost done with the book. I was like, wow, okay. And so early the next year, beginning of 2020, right before the pandemic, uh, the manuscript was done and we went down and read it in her agent's office, but it wasn't released yet. I don't think it was coming out until about May and fell in love with the story and wanted to start the process and actually started developing it with Suzanne and with Nina, the producer, and Michael Arndt, the first writer, uh, screenwriter on it, long before the book even came out. I'm curious about those conversations you're having with the screenwriter, because one of the things I really loved about the movie was the structure. I felt like it really, and I haven't not read the book, so I don't know how much of that just comes from the book, but I felt like the movie, you know, kind of kept rebooting in an interesting way. Like, I feel like you get multiple movies for the price of one kind of thing. And I'm curious, like, what what were the challenges of uh, adapting the book and how involved are you in the writing process with Michael Arndt during those early stages? Very involved. I mean, the way that I have kind of always approached it with these movies, and this started with Catching Fire, was um, because when I signed on to do Catching Fire, it was just a book, there was no script. And so I went and I sat with Suzanne in New York for about a week, and she and I went through the book and created kind of the initial beat sheet of what we thought the movie was gonna be. We then handed that to Michael Arndt. So we've done that with every movie since, and so we did it again with this, where I sat there with the manuscript with Suzanne, we created the beat sheet for it. A lot of the structure you're talking about actually was in the book. There's sort of three general sections like we have in the film. Um, She's also quite a structuralist uh, with her stories, and she actually has a background in screenwriting. So I think she thinks almost in sort of screenwriting formats and structures. I sort of approach things that way. Michael Arndt does. So, you know, we have sort of three structuralists working together. Um, But anyway, we do a beat sheet. We sort of pass it to Michael Arndt. And then we start the the process of he starts writing pages and then I'm working with Suzanne, Nina, all of us, you know, having daily sort of calls or Zooms and things and, you know, just kind of grinding away. And we, we do that for, you know, two years. So is Suzanne pretty intimately involved with every aspect of the filmmaking or is she is it just at the screenwriting stage? It's really the adaptation process. So what happens is she's, she's really um, integrated in, in that process. Um, She's great because she's sort of a North Star for us in terms of making sure that we stay on theme and theme stays present, really tracking characters, making sure that we sort of keep the spirit of the story. But she also, because she was a screenwriter, she knows there's going to be some attrition. She knows if this is the longest book that there that there is in the series, that we're going to have to condense things. We're going to have to combine scenes, ideas from multiple scenes into one scene, you know, because we have to shorten it for time. 
And she's really helpful that way um, and never gets precious, uh, but, you know, has opinions because she knows the story well and knows the characters well. Now, coming into this, you know, obviously you did three movies before that's, you know, essentially like seven and a half hours or something worth of Hunger Games. And coming into it now, what were your concerns in terms of, I guess, is it a challenge to strike a balance between fulfilling expectations set up by the previous films and still sort of finding new directions to strike out in? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's eight years after the other movies. You know, you, you know, I love being part of the world. I love working with these people. I fell in love with the story. That's always the most important thing for me. The truth is, is, you know, you do wonder, you go, is there still going to be an appetite for Hunger Games movies? Is there going to be an appetite for a Hunger Games film without Katniss? Um, and you sort of cross your fingers and you hope and you go, well, you know, what's great about Suzanne is she writes from real ideas. It's not just a rehash. We're not just watching another games. It's really about something. She's telling a real story. It's a very different kind of story, even though we're in the world that feels somewhat familiar. And so there was a lot of sort of exciting things for me, and especially for fans who may be nostalgic about the other movies. There's a lot of the origins of things that they know and love in the previous films and books that they sort of get new knowledge of in this too. And I thought that could be very exciting. But, you know, there's always a little bit of a worry when, you know, you're sort of jumping back in and kind of, you know, restarting a, a, a franchise again. What kinds of conversations do you have with your department heads in terms of figuring out how you're going to kind of extrapolate from the other movies and work, sort of reverse engineer and work your way back to, you know, what the guiding principles are going to be in terms of cinematography, production design, costumes. I mean, where did you want to kind of remain faithful to the franchise? And I guess sort of similar to my previous question, where did you want to kind of take it in different directions? Well, I mean, I think that the book gave us freedom to take it in a, a very di different direction aesthetically. And it's just because it takes place 64 years before the other, you know, the other stories. So it's, you know, in essence, a period piece to the other films. And, you know, what we did was we sort of looked at Reconstruction Era Berlin, which is, you know, like 1945, 1946, the sort of rubble in the streets, the rebuilding of classic buildings, the, you know, construction of new buildings, you know, and that also sort of drove hair, makeup, wardrobe, everything. We just like, but sort of honing in on that. And so there are moments where we get sort of hints at the Panem that we're sort of used to, but truthfully, like the costumes are different, the hair is different, the architecture is different for the most part. And that was sort of our guiding principle was, you know, the world is the world, there are games, um, but you know, it's a, it's a just a different aesthetic altogether. And I think, you know, visually in terms of camera work and working with my cinematographer who's, you know, been working with me back from the music video days, but started in movies with me on Catching Fire. I think that our way of working has just kind of evolved over the years. And we started really enjoying working with the sort of large format digital cameras, which and the lensing becomes a little different and I like wide lenses. And so it was less about this story in particular and more about the what my sort of aesthetic has changed into, I think. Yeah, well, I want to dig into that a little bit because something I've always liked about your movies is uh, they always kind of really draw me in as a viewer. I feel like I get really immersed in the world. And I think a lot of that does have to do with the way you use lenses. And so, you know, obviously, you know, that it's scene specific in certain ways and things like that. But it does seem like you have these a kind of overall philosophy a little bit about how you use lenses. And I'd like you to talk about that. You know, you just mentioned liking wide lenses. And I think that is 
a real defining characteristic of these Hunger Games movies. Like, I love the way you place the characters and the environments and in relationship to each other. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Sure. I mean, you know, I think, like, in terms of blocking scenes and things like that now, I think what I've what I've done and what these movies have really taught me and working with such fantastic act- actors is I actually think a little less visually and th- I think a little more like an actor now. So in terms of like what human beings would do within a scene and within a certain environment, um, and I sort of start to design things based on that. The lensing that I, I like, and I tend to lean toward wider lenses because I, what I feel it allows me to do is be close to the actors, um, and, and I like an audience to sort of feel intimate with actors, like you're right up there with them. But when you use the wider lenses, you maintain a sense of place, a sense of geography, a sense of scale, because you're sort of getting more as opposed to a long lens, which compresses everything and throws everything out of focus. You're kind of isolating a character and the environment sort of vanishes almost. And I do feel that subconsciously audiences feel the distance. I think they feel that a camera is about a mile away on a thousand millimeter lens looking at somebody in a close-up versus a camera that's like right up here in somebody's face and feeling like you're really with with the person. And so you mentioned the large format digital cameras. I'm assuming that the previous Hunger Games movies, probably at that point you were still shooting on film, right? Or were they... Catching Fire was the last project that I shot on film. And we shot, yeah, 35 anamorphic, some spherical because we went to IMAX and some about 30 minutes of it with IMAX cameras. And then the Mockingjays was when we switched to digital. And so we started shooting digital and I've shot everything since digital. And when I started, um, there's a TV show I did for Apple called C, we actually started using the, the large format, the 65 millimeter sensor on the Alexa. And that I fell in love with. And that's where I really started to see how sort of different the depth of field is and how the lenses for that camera and that sensor in general, you can actually go much wider without getting that kind of warping and distortion on people's faces. And so you still get, you really get that intimacy and maintain the scope at the same time. And so has that changed or helped in any way, just the way you approach blocking and planning your shots, everything working with large format? Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, I, there, there's kind of a, there's a sort of textural quality to it um, because of the depth of field change. Uh, there's, you know, this idea that you can, you know, bring cameras much closer to people and you don't have to worry about like their noses getting too big and all of that. But I wouldn't say it changes the blocking because again, I think blocking in, of scenes, I'm not sort of putting shots first. I'm now trying to sort of focus on you know, the human beings, the characters first and what feels sort of believable and natural and and interesting and what's kind of serving the emotional value of the scene. So keeping that in mind, are you the kind of director, do you pre-plan or pre-design your shots and your blocking a lot? Or is it a thing where you prefer to get to the set and see the actors on the day and watch what they're going to do first and kind of respond to it? Or is it? No, of- I mean, it's it's a mix. I have, I, I usually always have a plan, right? So this was shot on location for the most part. I think we built one set. And so when, we are, when we're going into these locations and thinking about how it's going to work, and I'm talking with, you know, my production designer about, you know, let's say you're looking at like Heavensby Hall or something. And I'm thinking about, you know, Peter Dinklage, where's he going to start? How's he going to walk? What's his path going to be if he's talking to the students? Where would, does it make sense to have the students place? Where would Gaul be? And, you know, sometimes it's pretty easy to sort of figure out where kind of people would be. And then I start thinking about what the shots might be. But it usually starts to come after I'm trying to think about behaviorally 
if I make up a plan and I'm not thinking about the actors and not thinking about the characters, then the plan most likely will get thrown out the window by the time the actors come in and we all start figuring out what feels authentic. Um, so I try and think of that first and then come up with a sort of visual plan around what I believe the characters would be doing after that. So I always come in to the day with a plan with the room for somebody else to have some amazing idea and something to shift or something to change because we've discovered something new. Yeah, it's kind of amazing to me when you say that the movie was all shot on location and that you maybe only had one set. I mean, because the production design in it is incredible. Where, yeah. did, where did you, what part of the world did you shoot this in? We shot primarily in Germany, a little bit in Poland. The arena was a place we, we had uh, found in Western Poland called Centennial Hall in Wrocław. And we were based in Berlin and shot most of the movie in Berlin. We also shot in um, the Dusseldorf, Duisburg area in Cologne as well for like District 12 stuff. Um, and where did that idea come from to largely avoid building sets and do things on location? I, mean, I think it works really, really well for the movie. Like for me, I think it makes it much more weighted and immediate and realistic. Yeah, I mean, I th that was the goal. The goal was to see how many real real places we could find and if we need to sort of digitally augment them um, into looking exactly the way we want. But it's always important to me to, to, you know, have as many real places as possible so that it's as immersive as possible for the actors. It also helps with the cinematography when you know what the architecture is and what your framing is, you know, what you're going to be seeing and... Um, that's always very helpful. It's so much better than just being on, you know, a green void and and building everything after the fact. In terms of the actors and the casting, I mean, you've got like a great cast here and it's a really interesting range of actors. I mean, you have people who are extremely, you know, established veteran actors like Viola Davis or Peter Dinklage. And then you're working with a lot of younger actors as well. Basically, what's your approach in terms of trying to facilitate the actor's best work? Are you the kind of director, do you like to do a lot of rehearsal? Is it more about just the environment you create on set? You know, what's what's your sort of, I guess for lack of a better word, overall philosophy uh, when it comes to working with actors? You know, I'm, it, it varies. I mean, one of the things that I learned, especially doing these movies, because, you know, I had, uh, you know, these movies tend to have a lot of actors and a lot of very good actors and all actors' personalities are very, very different. The problem with these movies is the schedules are so long and certain actors, you know, like in this one, Viola Davis comes in. She's in for three weeks of our shooting schedule somewhere near the end. Peter Dinklage is in for three or four weeks, you know, kind of in the middle with a little overlap with her. What we don't get on these movies typically, which I would love to do, is have two weeks where all the actors come in and we have a great table read and we all sit around and pair people up and have discussions and rehearse before we even start shooting. That doesn't really happen. So usually what I do is I take the opportunity um, when I can with the actors to sort of sit down and have meetings with them individually and go through the, the script and talk about the, the characters and references for the characters and talk about their connection to the theme, talk about their character journeys, if there's dialect, anything like that, have big sort of conversations so that we have the same kind of goals. And then the real rehearsal comes on the day so that we have this time where you sort of clear everybody out and have the set just to ourselves and we can talk about stuff. I can share my ideas. We can feel things out. If the actors have other ideas, they can feel things out until it really feels comfortable. Um, and then we kind of go from there. In an ideal situation, I would have a few weeks of rehearsal beforehand, but 
especially on these, it never works out. Well, and you mentioning how long the shooting schedules are on these movies, you know, leads me to another question, which is just how do you kind of keep up your physical and mental and emotional stamina on these movies? Because they do look so, to me, you know, I watch them and they seem so overwhelming in terms of the scale. You know, I, you know, I made an independent film once that shot for like three weeks and I was exhausted at the end. And it was like an all took place in one room practically. So I'm always amazed when I see these big epic, uh, you know, films. And I'm just, just wondering how do you kind of uh, keep from getting burnt out on a movie that's taking so many months? One of the things that I do is I try to make sure that I have the amount of days that I think I really need, right? That I, um, it's one of the things that I really fight for is I really work on the schedule with the AD, with the line producer. I make sure I'm very, very aware of what the workload is on any given day and that it's actually doable. The other thing I do is I try my absolute best to stay to 10 hour days. You know, the average in the business is 12 hour days. Lots of people go beyond that, which becomes very long. And it also starts to shift your week because of turnarounds where you end at nights, which kind of blows people's weekends. And then you don't really have a Friday night and you're wrapping Saturday morning and then you're sleeping. And so you maybe have a Saturday night and a Sunday to run some errands. I try to avoid that. So I think that maintaining sort of more efficient, shorter shorter hours, maintaining a week that stays like a more civilized work week, maintaining weekends, not doing six day weeks, all that kind of stuff. I think that A really helps me, but I think also really helps the crew because what also makes everything better is when things are working efficiently, your, your plan is right, your schedule's right, your hours are shorter. Um, everybody's happier and everybody works better, in my opinion. Well, in terms of maintaining those 10-hour days, I mean, what are some of the ways you do that? I mean, does a lot of it have to do with just preparation and working with the same people? I mean, a lot of it's preparation. It's, it's, it's really making sure that it's scheduled right. And it's also making sure that I really have a plan and that uh, my team and I have a plan so that when we get to a certain day, we know what the the plan is for that day. We know what the scene's going to entail. We know, so we're not suddenly discovering, oh, on this day, I never thought about this. I have 75 shots. There's no way we're going to get through it in 10 hours, right? That we know the the workload for, for every day through the 85-day schedule. And, you know, I wanted to ask also about your, the approach to hair and makeup in the movie, because something I noticed that I really liked was a lot of the characters, the hair and makeup kind of tells their story and reflects, especially like Jason Schwartzman, like mm. his hair and makeup kind of gets crazier as the movie goes along. Yeah. Same thing. And, um, and I think like Dinklage and Viola Davis, like all of them, there's a lot of Obviously, they're all great actors and they're doing a lot of the work, but a lot of the work is also being done by the hair and makeup. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what some of the conversations you were having with your hair and makeup departments were like in terms of those characters. You know, it's interesting. I think a lot of that is born from those initial conversations I was saying that I have with actors, right? So Vi like Viola, you know, isn't doesn't really look as perfectly described in the book. And I think the, the conversations that we had, again, I was talking to her about her character, her character's connection to the themes, themes in the book. And I had a reference for her character, actually, because one of the things that I think Dr. Gall has is she has this kind of joy in the creativity of her work, even though it's quite sinister. And my reference for her was Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka, right? Is that she's kind of like the Gene Wilder Willy Wonka of this world and of game makers, which she totally got. But I think that started to inspire both Trish in terms of costume, hair and makeup team, but also Viola. Viola came up with the eye to have uh, the idea to have the different colored eye, and so it starts to inform. 
like with Jason, a lot of the detail that you see with him comes from those same kind of conversations where we're talking about Lucky Flickerman and how he's a weatherman, but he's this sort of amateur magician. And we're finding reference. And so he's looking at vaudevillian magicians and looking at different kinds of weathermen and looking at, you know, journalists and talk show hosts and sort of picking and pulling these various kind of ideas that informs Trish with the costumes, right? That as he starts to embrace this role as being host, the costumes kind of ramp up. Jason had the idea that his hair would actually start to get a little bigger and his mustache would get a little fancier. And, but he's, he also puts a lot of work into the detail and to, you know, like the weird way his hair gets like sort of folded in in the back. And a lot of that's from the research that, that he did. But again, it all sort of kickstarts from the sort of early conversations we have about what the references are and what the goals are for the, for the character. You know, it's interesting. You were mentioning how all actors are different. And again, a movie like this where you've got such a huge cast, is that ever a challenge in the sense of just, you know, when you're working with this big of a cast and, you know, some actors maybe are going to be, you know, better on take one and some are going to be better on take eight and some like a little more rehearsal and discussion and some don't like to talk about it and all of that kind of stuff. How do you reconcile all of those sort of contradictory or conflicting things when you're working with actors? It gets tricky sometimes, but I will say what I've what's happened for me is I've gotten quite lucky, right? I think that this group all, um, they're all very respectful. They're all very good at what they do. There are some that come out of the gate hot and good and then start to fizzle out. There are some people that sort of need to ease ease in and take that time. But everybody's very respectful and patient and understands that everybody has their sort of different styles. And also everybody sort of really thought, we're working with a great bunch of actors here. The same thing would happen on, you know, the earlier movies. I know, you know, like Jen hates rehearsals. And she kind of will like sort of, you know, she'll do it because other people want to do it. But you have somebody like Phil Hoffman who loves to rehearse. And, you know, if it was up to Jen, I would say, you're going to walk in over here. You're going to turn around. You do this, do that. What? And she's like, great. Phil would want to like sit and think about stuff and talk to him and try this and try that and try this. And, you know, it sort of expands rehearsals. But Jen respects Phil. She doesn't like rehearsing. But she's like happy to be there because she knows he does it and he's a great actor. And, you know, so everybody sort of, you know, ends up kind of getting along. What I do try to do, though, is think about when shooting, if somebody's going to take 12 takes to get it and somebody's going to take two takes to get it, I'm going to shoot the person that takes two takes first because they'll start to burn out. And if they're doing it you know, so many times while I'm on the person that's going to take 12, 15 takes to get it right, they'll already be sort of fried and past their kind of prime, let's say, for for the scene. So, you know, you just, there's a psychology, I guess, to, you know, the order of shooting people and do you start close because somebody's really good right away or do you start wide and let people kind of warm up? It it, it varies based on who who's in the scene and and how much time you have and what the scene is. And, and tell me a little bit about the creation of the songs and the music in the movie. Like how early in the process does that work begin? You know, Suzanne, when she told us about the book, she didn't want to say what the story was, but she did say there was a big sort of music element to it, which was intriguing. Then when I read the book, I read, you know, she has all the songs in and she has the songs written, the lyrics written. And Suzanne's a big fan of country music and specifically kind of the, the genre of country music that we were sort of aiming for. 
And so she had a lot of references in her head of songs that these things, you know, that these songs might sound like, like sort of time signatures and kind of rhythms and things like that. She urged me to watch the Ken Burns documentary on country music, which I did, and I kind of fell in love also with that sort of genre of music from, you know, the 20s and 30s, kind of coming out of West Virginia, Carter family style stuff. So we decided to hire Dave Cobb, who's a Nashville-based producer and songwriter. And he took the lyrics, talked to me about how songs should feel, talked to Suzanne about all of her references. And he then wrote the chord progressions and the melodies, and he put this little team together um, that's based on the orchestration that Suzanne had in the book for the band and rented this kind of mansion in Savannah and sort of did some old style kind of recording and put this group together and made these songs. Um, and that happened, you know, all the way up to around, it took, you know, up to around the time we started shooting. Um, and then Rachel didn't really sing on them until we started shooting the games and we would go in Poland and she put her vocals on the songs. But that's really just for the recorded versions and almost also as like a rehearsal for her to sort of get the sound right. Um, for the tone of the songs. And then on the day, she would actually sing everything live. So everything you see in the movie, she sings live, whether it's, you know, on the hop, stage at the hob or acapella pieces by herself, you know, in the games or in the forest or whatever. She does all that live. And, and what kind of discoveries did you make in the editorial process? Because again, I, I really love the kind of unconventional structure this movie has, but does that create any additional challenges or make the editing trickier in any way? No, it doesn't really make the editing tricky. I mean, I think one of the challenges with this story was um, was you know length that we had to make sure that you know we were at like a palatable length. The other thing is that the sort of perception of Hunger Games movies is that they end with the end of the games, right? And this one we have a third chapter that comes after. So it was making sure we sort of transition into that third act post games as sort of as quickly and as smoothly as possible to sort of get people into like, oh wow, there's another chapter here because people just aren't conditioned for that in these movies. Well, I guess to wrap things up, I got to ask uh, you what's next for you and do you think there are going to be more Hunger Games movies still in your future? Um, don't know what's next. You know, those, those strikes, you know, have held kind of everything up. Um, we're back at development, luckily, now that the writer's strike is over. So I'm hoping I'll know by the beginning of the year what's next. And then, you know, if there's another Hunger Games movie, it's, it's up to Suzanne. I know Nina and I, you know, we don't want to develop anything without her. So if she writes another book, then... I'm in. Well, thanks so much for doing this. Thank I you. Really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Yeah. Thanks. No, I really like the movie a lot. Thank so you so much. Great. Yeah.